Hello, this is the Made Musings podcast, the podcast that focuses on everyday issues, illnesses, and disabilities that affect everyday people. Find us anywhere you listen to your podcast and on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and YouTube at Made Musings. Please subscribe. Today, my guest is somebody that is a sibling to a person living with disability because all my episodes previously have been people living with different disabilities and illnesses. And I'm so excited today because she's somebody that is going to share her experience as a sibling to somebody living with disability. And she's also a coach. She's based in Wisconsin in the U.S. So I will leave her to give out the full details and welcome to my podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Um, My name is Annie Trummel. I am a coach and consultant to parents and siblings of children with disabilities. I help those children, those neurotypical children and their parents find connection among the chaos in a family with disability so that everyone's needs get met. And I do that by essentially working one-on-one with families. Um, I have a number of packages I provide and I work with families closely to make sure that all other questions get answered and that any difficulty that they're, they're having with connection in their family is something that we can address and, and make better. Oh, thank you for that introduction. And it seems that your work is really what is needed right now, especially for people living with disabilities and for members of the public that really don't know what you do as a coach. How do you help families to assess the help they need? Usually, I start usually with a free call with a parent in the family. Um, Usually, it's called a clarity call, and we we meet and we talk. And I like to get to know a little bit about their family, specifically about their children. I like to learn about the child with a disability because disabilities are so broad along such a broad spectrum that often the type of disability within the family dictates a lot of the other struggles that family members, neurotypical children and parents are having within the family. So it's important to me to get to know what everybody's needs are within the family and what everybody's requirements are within the family. Because as we know, in families with disability, especially children with disability, there's a lot of non-negotiable things that have to happen and that you have to work around. And that in many cases, typical parenting coaches or programs are not able to address. So I make sure to include those when we chat, find out what's going on within the family, and then we create a personalized program for that family to move forward. Oh, thank you. And in doing your work and creating all these um, parts and things for the families and to move forward, are there red flags that you sometimes notice or even look out for when you coach families? Yeah, a lot of the times families come to me right around the time their kids are kind of in that late tween, maybe even early tween, but often late tween to teen stage where the neurotypical sibling or the typically developing sibling is starting to struggle uh, with the role in the family, starting to struggle with the way resources are distributed with the family and with their connections with their parents um, and with their sibling. Parents often will 
approach me at that point. So that's a big red flag. Another big red flag that I like to talk about a little that a lot of Hive's parents don't notice is a lot of times neurotypical siblings are great caregivers and they're great helpers within the family. They really pick, help pick up the pieces. They help support the family in taking care of this sibling with a disability and with keeping the family together as a whole. And as those children reach that tween teen year, years where they're developing their own self-identity, oftentimes because they're at a loss with that process, they often withdraw. Whereas they were possibly quiet to begin with, they completely withdraw. And whereas typical teens push boundaries and often will cause conflict, often uh, siblings to people with disabilities will withdraw intensely. And while most parents, many parents will kind of miss that or kind of not see it as a red flag because their child isn't overtly causing trouble within the family or outside the family. Uh, The truth is a child that's withdrawn is truly struggling more so than a child who is acting out. So that's a huge red flag. Oh, thank you so much. So in picking out all these red flags and when you notice the reply, the, the withdrawals, like from kids that are struggling, what are some of the resources that are available that parents and families are often not aware of? Well, one of the things that we really work on when I work with families, there's kind of three areas we work on. We work on boundaries, we work on communication and self-advocacy, and we work on developing a circle of support. So I'd say those are three things that it's really important for families to focus on when their child is showing some of those red flags. And when you talk about boundaries and communication and developing a circle of support, what are, the, what are some of the things that are included in these resources? The great thing about working with families together is that oftentimes when we talk about we're developing boundaries for the typically developing sibling, we also work on developing boundaries with the other members of the family, specifically the parents and the children with disabilities. Oftentimes the reason students struggle is because boundaries have not been something that's been real strong within the family. And unfortunately, it's very easy for anyone, even families without disabilities, to struggle with boundaries. So really where we start is by kind of taking a look at where they're at, where they struggle now, where the conflict is. When you find where the conflict is, usually you can find where the boundary problems are. And then we usually begin by really finding out what the family is looking for from their connections, what they need individually and as a family unit. We start there. Okay. From your experience, what are some of the things that you found that families always or often require with their treatments and with the siblings living with disabilities? Again, what's really important is is those boundaries, that self-advocacy, and also that circle of support. The biggest thing, all those three things make an enormous difference. But if there's one thing I would recommend for families to start with, it would be to develop that circle of support. And within developing that circle of support, we talk a lot about not only having resources for the child with a disability, which is usually the first thing we worry about, but also having resources and outlets for the child without the disability. And in many ways, when we talk about that, we end up talking a lot about how to ask for help, how to ask for help kindly, often, and early. So that's one of the things that we tend to work on a lot, especially important in times of chaos. And families of disability are no strangers to times of chaos. So that's not a new concept to them. But, it's, but what people don't think about often is that it's really important 
to have as an everyday practice so that when the chaos times do come, you're practiced. You know how to ask for help early, often, and kindly. Oh, yes. I, I actually do agree with you on that because I know how important it is really essential to have a circle of support, to have a plan in place for the disabled person, and to yes. always have this support available from family is priceless. If, I mean, when you have your sibling supporting you, it gives you that extra layer of confidence and the extra layer of push that you need to go about your daily activities. So as somebody, because I, I, I actually do have some disabilities myself and my siblings have been very supportive through my disability, but it's not like my disability is physical, but in every way, I still sometimes struggle and I have my moments when it's just my siblings that push me and they help me through each day. And sometimes it's just being their call or their text message to say, oh, I was thinking about you. How are you faring? The little things, I mean, matter when you have a disability, even at this time of the, uh, in our lives, when it's not even anybody living with disability, it's so essential to be able to connect to somebody, not just family, just have a circle of support, have maybe friends, maybe somebody that you, somebody you, you touch base with regularly. So that's important in psychology. It helps you to be able to focus and to have something to look forward to. Yes. And that sibling relationship, that's so important. And unfortunately, oftentimes when there's a child with a disability in the family, the typically developing child and that child with a disability, oftentimes resentment grows in that relationship as they're growing up because of the differing amounts of attention that are given by the parent, by the inability to oftentimes have just a sibling relationship because there's also often a caregiver relationship there. One might seem like the boss of the other. Um, One might resent having to be that person. One might resent having to be on the receiving end of that. So yeah, it's so important to, to really nurture these relationships and make sure that you build a good foundation for them as you grow. Because as we know, disability is lifelong. So you have to be able to prepare yourself for a life of how to have those connections, how to build that circle of support. Oh, yes, I, I do appreciate that also, because I know sometimes um, sibling envy and jealousy develops from the, giving too much attention to the child with disability, and you neglect the child that doesn't have any disability. So it's so important to be able to balance that as parents and as caregivers, So you should not give too much attention. Even though the child that has disability does need so much attention, but you always have to balance your time and your love for the other kids that don't have disability, which is something that I think is a red flag in our society, in every society, really. Everywhere I've gone, I've seen that happen. Um, Yes. It's really important to, and I wanted to just highlight that. 2020 was such a tough time for anyone. And 
what are some of the noticeable impacts the pandemic has had on families of people living with disabilities in your opinion? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm with you. 2020, (laughs) it was tough. I think of all families, though all families we know are struggling, I think the the unspoken truth is that families of disability have really been struggling. Part of the reason being because many of the resources that they currently or they had recently had to assist their family are often not available, either on the same schedule, they're only partially available or not available at all as far as serving your child with a disability or serving their family. Of course, that caregiving role that we know is so important, but also that is so draining for both parents and siblings has become something you can't take a break from during COVID. If you're in lockdown or if you're, because often families with disability are more vulnerable and cannot go out or cannot make their child susceptible to this sickness, they are very much together all the time. They don't get those breaks that caregivers need so much. And as we all know, anything, any dynamic that was happening in the family that wasn't serving the family well before COVID is now multiplied because you can never get away from it. So COVID, I mean, and that's just a few of the things that have happened because of COVID, but COVID has been so difficult and detrimental that families need support now more than ever. Um, And they need intense support to help them move forward because the truth is we don't know how long this is going to last and we don't know it's possible something like this could happen again. So at least we're now aware and we can, we can really think about our families and what kind of support we want to, we want to provide to our families to protect them and to prepare them for this. Oh, thank you so much for bringing that up. Yes. It's, is the right time right now to start supporting families. Oh, thank you so much. What has your experience been as a sibling to someone living with disability? Yes. Well, have, I'm the oldest sibling of five and the middle child, my, my sister Dube, she has autism and intellectual disability, along with a host of other medical and mental disabilities that kind of go along with that. So very much as a child growing up, I was a secondary caregiver. I think it was innate in my nature as the oldest child and as the oldest of five of a large family, but also because it's a, it's a team effort when you have a child with a disability in a family and everyone, because of their love for each other and because of the health of the family unit, we all pitched in and I definitely did that. I did discover this, I got older, that I really struggled with uh, figuring out who I was, what I wanted. I had trouble expressing my needs, asking for anything that I needed or asking for help. And that really developed into me having difficulty when I got older, identifying something as simple as making a simple decision about where to go or what to do, being the person to take the lead. I struggled with that. And then it, it flowed over into dip more difficult decisions like career choices and developing uh, relationships with partners. I really struggled with that because of the dynamics in my family early on. And my parents, my parents did the best they could. They're, they did a great job and they did what they, what they knew to do to keep everyone going. Unfortunately, it's just the nature of the beast that in a family with disability, these struggles are going to happen. So looking back now, that's why I do what I do. I want to help other families so that their neurotypical children, their typically developing children, have a better idea and can develop these skills as they grow and as they learn so that they 
feel more comfortable in life. They don't develop the health risks that many other SIBs do and that they're able to move forward happily and advocate for themselves, setting boundaries and communicating well with others. I can actually empathize with you because I'm the older sibling in the family and all my other, the younger ones have to come to me for help, but I'm the one that actually does need help, if you get what? (laughs) Yes, yes. That's a conundrum. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And sometimes I just feel so helpless. And I think I need all the help in the world. And everybody's like, okay, I'm struggling. My, I have my struggle at the moment. I think everybody's right now, everybody's got their own struggles. And now they were still reaching out to them to say, yes. oh, how are you? How is everything going? You know, keeping that family bound. And unfortunately, we lost our parents like within a space of two years apart. And that actually hits everybody in a different, I mean, it, it hit us really, really, really bad. It, we weren't expecting it. So, oh, oh I'm yeah. sorry to hear that. Oh, thank you so much. We weren't expecting that. And it's been, it's had an in- impact on the family and it's had an impact on each one of us differently. So it's something that really happens when, the siblings and uh, two siblings of people living this with disabilities, you become sometimes you become the primary caregiver, you sometimes you are the guardian of the disabled sibling. Yes. And you have so many responsibilities on your shoulder. So absolutely. Yeah. Do you think siblings who take on such responsibility should be acknowledged more? Goodness, yes. (laughs) I think there are so many, so, so many siblings, neurotypical siblings, who eventually find themselves taking on some role, whether a complete guardianship role or a partial caretaker role or a decision maker role among their sibling once their parents are unable to care for their child with a disability or they pass away. This is a huge, I mean, we can't overstate what a huge, huge deal that is and how many caregivers there are in this country in that position who feel unprepared and who feel unqualified and who feel unsupported. So another main component of what I do when I talk to with families is we really do discuss how we approach talking with this with our children when they're young and how we keep the conversation going about care and about future care so that our children know that when it comes to care of their sibling or when it comes to the care of their sibling with a disability, that they'll have a choice. I think what's really important to convey to those siblings is that they have a choice and that they will have a choice and that we as parents will do the work that it takes to make sure that that they're prepared to make that choice and that the options for those choices are laid out and that it's been discussed before, unfortunately, that crisis happens where we lose our parents or, or they're unable to care for the child with a disability. Is it around what choice are you talking about? Well, and that's what I mean. And when I say choices, I mean, these are choices that'll be personalized per family. But just to give you an example, kind of to paint a picture for you, oftentimes parents with neurotypical kids and children with disabilities don't realize that children as young as four or five years old are already thinking about what's going to happen to their sibling 
and who's going to take care of this sibling when their parents aren't around. Because children oftentimes don't verbalize this, parents don't know that they're thinking it. But kids that young are really thinking what's going to happen. I recently talked to someone who shared their experience of when they were a parent to those children and playing outside with both their kids and their neurotypical child said to them, am I going to take care of my sibling when you die? And it shocked the parent because they weren't aware that children were thinking this, but the truth is that's a common thought. And it's really important for us when, you know, to start that conversation when kids are young and to have age appropriate conversations with our kids. Because when they're that young, you know, there's only, you, you can't lay too much on them. There's only a certain amount you can share with them that's developmentally they can handle. But it's really important from early on to kind of share with them that don't, that they don't need to feel that that burden is on them their entire life and that they're just waiting for that shoe to drop. Um, it's important that we share with them that we're going to be discussing the choices they have. We're going to be talking about what they might want and how their, their choices might change as they get older and how we're going to make sure that we've prepared the situation and we've, and we've created a situation where when that child makes a choice about caregiving, they have all the options laid out in front of them that they want. Sure, thank you. Yeah, you did. Uh, when, you, when you talked about the child, the neuropathic child saying, oh, I'm going to look after my sister when you're gone, that actually touches my heart. I, I can't even imagine such huge responsibility on a child already at such a tender age when that child is thinking, okay, when my parents go, I'm the one responsible for this sister or that brother it's such it's so huge and it's it should it should not happen to somebody that is so young at that tender age they shouldn't be thinking of that i think it's a bit overwhelming and i think right now we need to start looking at ways of changing that so that kids don't have to think they are the ones responsible for their siblings with disabilities Absolutely. I think it's really important to start the conversation early because, as you said, that is a huge burden on a child's shoulders, overwhelming, and not something that they can carry alone. Unfortunately, siblings of children with disabilities often don't vocalize their concerns. They often feel like vocalizing their concerns or sharing their questions makes them an additional burden on their parents, so they keep it to themselves. And as that burden builds as they grow older, it really impacts their mental health. It really impacts their connections with their family and their their self-identity. So it's so important to start the conversation early. All right. And what recommendations would you have for people who have siblings to persons living with disabilities? My, my recommendation is get support. Get support early. As a parent to children with disabilities and without Make sure that you are addressing and tending to the whole family. I know it can be hard. I'm a parent myself, obviously. I've worked with many, many families with disability and come from a family of disability. So I know how easy it is to fall into the trap of just getting by day to day, just getting through because there's so much going on and you have so many responsibilities, but it is worth it. In every sense of the word, it is worth the health of your family. It is worth the future of your family to stop and to take a look at the health of the entire family, both as a unit as a, and as each individual. So, so make sure you're reaching out for resources early, whether that's to me as a private entity or to public resources or, or to your family or to ever. Just make sure you're reaching out. Oh, yes, I do acknowledge that sometimes 
it could be so difficult to stay strong, especially when you have a sibling or even a loved one going through a tough time. And they do need, siblings do need support themselves and caregivers themselves do need a bit of care and counseling sometimes because when you see your sibling going through a difficult time, it, it sort of gives you, it, you end up having like, you, you are stressed and you are anxious and you are thinking of what, what's going to happen to them. And for these, people do need counseling. And sometimes these counseling services are not available to people who are siblings, to people who, are, who have disabilities. Even the people who have disabilities themselves don't have the counseling services. So it's always sometimes, it's sometimes not available to the family members and the siblings, specifically siblings and even parents of people living with disability. So I feel this should be extended. They should have counseling services for carers of people living with disabilities and the family members, especially. Yes, and it's so, I'm, I'm totally on board with you. I get what you're saying. I myself have found it's so hard to find professionals whether it's a counselor or a coach or anybody who they may have the skills um, to help coach you through certain things, but very few people have the lived experience of actually experiencing disability with their family um, or have, you know, on top of that, the professional experience of, of understanding how this impact families. And that's like an essential part to receiving services you have. It's really important to work with someone who knows your situation and understands Frankly, the chaos of dis- the chaos that disability can bring, because typical approaches oftentimes simply don't work for families with disability. You have to have someone who knows. Yeah, definitely. So um, we talked briefly about your experience with your sister who has a disability. How does your sister's disability affect her, and what ways do you support her? Well, my sister is an adult now. She's two years younger than me, and she lives in a group home. In I live in a rural area of near a city, and she lives in a group home in that particular city. So we are in relative proximity to each other. Fortunately, she receives a lot of services through that group home, and we're we're happy to to support them doing those services. Unfortunately, COVID has made it very very difficult for us. As I know it does with most families with family members in, in group homes or group care. And we haven't been able to communicate or see each other in the same way. So that's certainly been a struggle. But the thing is, by the time you get to adulthood, options for people with more severe or profound disabilities are more limited. So finally, she's, you know, she's 40 years old now. We've finally been able to reach a point where her care is pretty standardized, but it's taken this many years to get to that point. Oh, yeah. So you said, I'm so sorry that you've not been able to see your sister as much. And I think it's affected everybody that has relatives in care homes. But yes. Yeah, it's the same way in England. Um, I have a friend who is not seeing his dad for, I mean, months now. They couldn't even see themselves about Christmas. And I think it's so disheartening for families sometimes it's it's just heartbreaking but yes. i think they skype people do skype they do 
um, video calls and chats, but it's not always the same. And sometimes, mm-hmm. um, unfortunately, loved ones actually pass away whilst they yes. care, and you don't, you're not even there to say goodbye to them. So it's, uh, these are really traumatic times, and it's really trying period for families, especially when they have um, many, uh, other members of the family living with disability and in care homes. You have to just trust that the carers and the uh, people there know what they are doing and they're able to care for your relatives. Yes. Yes. And hope for the best in health for everyone. (laughs) Yeah. We just have to hope for the best right now. Yes. Yeah. So what's your final word for everybody at this time? I guess my message to families of disability at this point would be that there's help and resources out there. It's important that they know that. And sometimes you might subconsciously know it, you might have heard it, but I truly want you to believe it and know it. There are resources out there, however you choose to seek them. And it is really important to get support, especially right now for your family, so that you can prepare your family for the future, so that everybody has a future that they're looking forward to, that they're excited about, and that they feel comfortable and confident in because they know what's going to happen. That future planning for your family is so important. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's so important to have a future of care. I mean, just have a care plan for the people for, that you love right now. So what suggestions do you have for policymakers in terms of help and assistance given to siblings living with disabilities, especially in instances where the disabilities are lifelong and mm-hmm. the siblings become the appointed guardians? Yes. Yeah. Well, I guess my thought, there, there are so many aspects of policy that could be improved and changed, but I think the most imminent and the most important is we need to provide financial, um, educational support for caregivers, especially adult caregivers um, at this point. Obviously, policy is not going to affect childhood caregivers. That's kind of where I come in. <laughs> but for adult caregivers, We need educational and financial support for our caregivers. There is a huge percentage of caregivers, not just in my nation, but across the world, that are unsupported, provided resources, that are not provided help, not only to support the people they're caring for, but to support themselves. And when we don't have that support, it breaks down families. It's really important for policymakers to to take a look at this. And frankly, I'm surprised and worried that it hasn't happened at this point. I often think policymakers aren't overly concerned about this because many policymakers are in the financial position to hire help. But the fact is most of us aren't. So it's really important that we lobby our policymakers to, to make sure all people have that support. Yeah, everybody needs to be on the same page because, yes, I do understand some policymakers are in a position to get extra help for their family members but it's not everybody that has that facility it's being yeah it's it's always good to have extra point of view not just the point of view of people living with disabilities you have given your view as a no no number one you've given your care your view as somebody that is a coach and then you've given your view as a sibling to 
somebody living with disability right now. So thank you so much. And uh, hopefully we'll have another opportunity to come back to you in future. Yes. And thank you so much for having me. I appreciate you being able to let me serve your audience and, and, and talk about something that I'm so passionate about. Thank you for listening. Please download and share with your friends and family and on social media platforms. We are available on Apple, Google, Amazon, Spotify, IAT Radio, Listening Note, Podchaser, Good Pods, Radio Public, Stitcher, Deezer, Pocket Cast, Himalaya, and anywhere you listen to your podcast. Please leave a review, comments, or feedback on our social media platforms on YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and also on our website www.podbean.com. Thank you very much.